right, welcome ladies and gentlemen, Pastor Eli James here. This is Genesis to Revelation, May 29th, 2021. No Dan today, so I'm going to do a, a descriptive show because we have been talking about the transition from Joseph to the Israelites and uh, the ultimate uh, period of slavery and the children of Ephraim uh, being the children, of course, of Joseph, and uh, how the Israelites, when they finally invaded Canaan land, took over uh, Jericho and other cities. And we have in the bloodline of Messiah, a woman named Rahab, and her, her genealogy has been questioned by many people, especially Jews, because they want the genealogy of Yahshua Messiah to be stained with the blood of uh, Edomites and other people, okay? But uh, this is not true. This never happened. And uh, Dan and I talked about the Mo- Moses' wife and uh, the wife of Joseph, uh, Azanath, that showed that they were all Adamites. There, There's no non-Adamites in the bloodline <coughs> of Yahshua from the day that uh, Yahweh breathed the breath of life into Adam in Genesis 2, verse 7. There was no blood in the uh, you know, foreign blood mixed in with that genealogy. In fact, the Bible goes to great lengths, to great pains, actually, to exclude non-Adamites from the bloodlines. So, uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, and Brother Abraham, if Ruth wasn't Moabite, then Jesus would be part Moabite, right? Yeah, he would. <laughs> but uh, we have talked about Ruth uh, on past shows fairly extensively, that uh, proving. In, in fact, I wrote an article called "The Parable of Ruth," showing that uh, the historical territory that was still called Moab uh, was devoid of Moabites for over two hundred years before Ruth even settled there. And she settled there because there was a, um, a famine in, uh, in, in Israel proper, in Palestine proper. And so that territory uh, was ruled over by Israel, uh, although not always inhabited by Israelites, for over 200 years. Uh, the Moabites had been wiped out totally, and there were no Moabites in that territory. So Ruth was definitely not a Moabite by race. She was a Moabite by residence, just as some of you are unfortunate enough to live in California (laughs) and are called Californians. Some of us are unfortunate enough to live in Illinois and are called Illinoisans. Some of you are unfortunate enough to live in New York and are called New Yorkers. It does not mean that is your race. That's the territory you live in, and that's what the term Moabite means when ascribed to Ruth, okay? Again, the Bible clearly tells us that that territory was devoid of Moabites, racial Moabites, for over 200 years. So there's no way Ruth could be considered a racial Moabite. But now, with regard to Rahab, I'm going to be quoting from uh, a book by Isabel Hill Elder called Far Above Rubies. And I did download this off the, uh, off the internet. Uh, you can try searching for it, uh, but the, the website seems to be corrupted now. I was going to provide the link, but uh, it just doesn't work right. 
And so uh, this book is about the women of Israel and the pure-blooded women of Israel. So aside from Ruth, whose genealogy has been questioned falsely, the same is true for Rahab. Now, the interesting thing about the uh, chapter on Rahab, which is chapter 7 from Far Above Rubies, and if you can, I would uh, advise you to get a print copy of Far Above Rubies because it is an outstanding book. It, uh, it demonstrates the pure-blooded genealogy of Yahshua Messiah. That's part of the intention of the book. So this is, no doubt, a Christian identity document published around 1958. And uh, let's, let's just go right into chapter 7. Rahab, this comes from Joshua chapter 2. The story of Rahab begins actually at the time Joseph brought his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to his aged father's couch to receive the patriarchal blessing, and which Dan and I had covered extensively on two episodes, Genesis 49 and 50. Jacob Israel recited the great covenant blessings of multiplicity of seed and accession of land to be inherited by his descendants in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. In addition, Jacob now bestowed on Joseph's younger son, Ephraim, the birthright, which went le- with, with which le- went leadership and, that's a triple W, with which went leadership, that's a tongue twister, and all the privileges of the firstborn. Okay, now it's very interesting, because by rights, Reuben would have been the firstborn. And Brother Abraham and I have done... Uh, Okay, rabbit hole wiki far above Ruby's brother. Ever put the link into the chat room. Maybe that's a better link than the one I had. I could not get the one that I wanted to share with people uh, to work. Anyway, see, <clears throat> Reuben would have because he was the elder son would have been the uh, high priest of the family and you know would have gotten a double portion of the inheritance, which the elder son always gets. But because Joseph's brothers, with the exception of Benjamin, who uh, was a little tyke, (laughs) his his brother was a little tyke and did not participate in the attempt to kill Joseph, all of his older brothers disqualified themselves from the uh, priesthood, which would be the priesthood of the order of Melchizedek, would have disqualified themselves, leaving Joseph as high priest and elder brother of all 12 tribes, okay? Now, he had to double portion in terms of having two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and, well, he he was probably the richest man on earth at that point in time, second only to the Pharaoh of Egypt. So talk about getting a double portion for being the elder son. Anyway, so that's how that worked out. And so Ephraim, being the 13th by, by adoption, was, again, the younger son, Manasseh was the older son, the younger son being Ephraim, but Jacob uh, said, no, uh, I want Ephraim to to get the double portion, not Manasseh, okay? And uh, Joseph actually objected to that, but uh, Jacob said, shush, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Yahweh has instructed me to give the double portion to Ephraim, okay? Let's, let's continue. So, so uh, Ephraim got all the privileges of the firstborn. 
Miss Elder says. These were strange words to fall upon the ears of the young boy, Ephraim. Quote, His younger brother Ephraim shall be greater than he, Manasseh, and he set Ephraim before Manasseh. Interestingly, however, uh, there is evidence that Manasseh, while growing up and living in Egypt, and as as an adult male in Egypt, contributed greatly to the transition from Paleo-Hebrew, uh, from uh, you know the old-fashioned letters, and, and actually making them syllables. He actually contributed a lot to the Hebrew language while he was in Egypt, because he was, in fact, the elder brother, and uh, d- did a lot of work while he was in e- Egypt. So uh, recent archaeological finds show that Manasseh was actually involved in... Uh, developing the Hebrew language, okay, and the phonetic, the phonetic language, and that's what differentiates our language, the languages of the white race from other languages, is that our, uh, our languages are based on phonetics, namely sounds imitate concepts. Sound, but not only just that, they, they, imitate or represent partial concepts. So when the phonemes are put together into a word, then then you have a complete picture. So these phonemes are, uh, uh, I don't think that any human, even white human, (laughs) white person could have developed this on his or her own. It had to be Yahweh instilling this uh, phonetic uh, representationism into our being, into our consciousness, and that's how it developed. But Manasseh was instrumental in uh, developing this, okay? Very important. Uh, 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 More and more information about Manasseh and Ephraim has come out recently, and uh, this book by uh, Hill Elder, uh, published in 1958, is one of the really important ones. Anyway, let's continue. Uh, Ephraim was already a very important boy. His mother was the princess of An of the royal house of Egypt. Now, there, uh, according to Dr. Wesley Swift, the priesthood of An was created by Enoch. An is short for Enoch. And so it's quite possible she was a, uh, a Shemite instead of a Hamite, but it doesn't really matter because they're, they're both Adamites. And so Joseph married an Adamite woman, and her name was Azanath, as given to us in the book of Genesis. So Azanath was a purely white woman, as was Sarah, as was Rebecca, as was Tamar, etc. etc. They were all white, pure white women, no uh, adjuvant, no adjuvant blood uh, introduced by vaccination into their bloodstream. Okay, so uh, this is uh, an absolute fact of the Bible that no non-Israelite blood or non-Adamic blood could be injected into the bloodline of Yahshua. And, of course, we have all kinds of prohibitions against race mixing all throughout Scripture. So uh, why would Yahweh allow uh, tainted blood to come into his bloodline when it's totally forbidden for all of Israel? So uh, go figure. Anyway, but that's how these people reason because they don't want to accept the fact that the Bible uh, demands racial purity. 
Okay, so in, in, in uh, continuing here. Now, uh, whether she was a Shemite or Hamite is irrelevant. She was a pure white woman, Azanath was, okay? And we'll find out the same was true of Rahab, okay? So, so she, she says that Ephraim was a, a son of the princess of An, the royal house of Egypt. His father, Joseph, prime minister of Egypt, quote, the lord of the country, who had proved himself a man of exceptional ability and wisdom. Of course, he was a Hebrew and a Shemite. Azanath was probably a Shemite also, but she may have been a Hamite. In those days, the Hamites were purely white. Okay, and all of the statuary of Egypt shows white faces, uh, Hebrew, uh, Hamitic, uh, Shemitic faces, and uh, the, the black faces were painted on <laughs> in much later times. The only depictions of blacks you have in the uh, the Egyptian record are slaves. They never rose above the level of slave. So there's no way you had any black pharaohs. And uh, if you just do uh, look any uh, videos of of pharaonic Egypt and the carved statues of their faces and bodies, you see exclusively Nordic, Caucasian faces. That's what you see, and that's what they were, Nordic, Caucasian, Hebrew, Israelites. And of course, they were Hamites, but the Hebrews had a fair intermixture of blood with them. Ham and Shem, after all, were brothers, okay? So there was a lot of mixing going on between these brothers, and that's that perfectly allowable uh, under you know, Adamic uh, racial law. Okay, no problem. Continuing. And, uh, so uh, the tribe of Ephraim was ennobled at its source by descent from the princess of An, as all Israel was ennobled by uh, by descent from Sarah, who was titled Queen of the Multitude, that their seed was to become. Okay, so the, the blessing of Sarah was very much the same as the blessing of Abraham. She, and Rebecca also, that both of these women would be parents of multitudes of nations, just as Abraham was blessed in such a fashion. Ephraim, brought up at the exclusive court of Egypt, received the best education the world could afford, Egypt at that time being the center of the world's culture. Ephraim, grown to manhood, married and had three sons, the names of whom are recorded in Numbers 2635. They were brought up in the knowledge of the inherited blessings bestowed not only on the Israel family, but those special promises of which the descendants of Ephraim were to be heirs, okay, and Ephraim being declared the elder son by Jacob. These family traditions were passed on to Ephraim's grandsons, whose names are recorded in First Chronicles 7, 20, 20, and 21. These three sons and six grandsons of Ephraim became impatient to enter upon their inheritance. The latter were the sixth in descent from Abraham, with whom the great land covenant was made in Genesis 15:18. Now, um, the, their names are recorded in 1 Chronicles 7, 20, 21, but their, uh, the, the information she provides here regarding them 
uh, the sons of Ephraim entering Canaan land before the Israelites is new information to me, and she doesn't give any source for that information. I wish she would, but maybe this is something we could look up. Anyway, here were the descendants of Abraham in Egypt, and in Egypt they seemed likely to remain. These sons of Ephraim decided to visit the land of Canaan and perhaps make a beginning in the colonization of the land. So they would have been aware of the promises given to Abraham. They said, okay, well, this land is supposed to be ours anyway, so let's go. (laughs) Let's go and take it. There was no difficulty in obtaining a footing in the promised land, for at that time and for long afterwards, Canaan was under the overlordship of Egypt. This is very, very important to understand that the land of Canaan was tributary to the Egyptians for all this time, even up to the time of the Israelite invasion of the land of Canaan. And uh, I just recently read a book called the Tel El Amarna Letters, the oldest letters on earth by Mrs. Sidney Bristow, which confirms a lot of the information contained in this book that the Canaanites were subject and tributary to the Egyptians. But right after the Exodus, right after the seven plagues hit Egypt and their army was literally destroyed, Egypt had to change its policy of overlordship with the other nations around Canaan land to making peace treaties with them, which shows a rapid diminution of power by the Egyptians after the Exodus. Okay, so they still maintained overlordship over the Canaanites and had outposts in Canaan land, such as the city of Jericho. But the people who occupied those outposts, those, uh, what's the term? Uh, outposts of diplomacy, diplomatic outposts, were Hamites. They were not Canaanites. They were Hamites, okay? And the the Egyptians had an overlord, an overseer of these various cities and uh, Canaanite nations to the extent that they were able to maintain military rule over Canaan land. And they were able to do this even until the time that the Israelites invaded Canaan land But the Egyptians could not do anything about it because they simply did not have the military strength because of their army and their culture being destroyed uh, by by Yahweh uh, as part of the Exodus. Okay, so let's continue. Here were the descendants of Abraham in Egypt, and in Egypt they seemed likely to remain. There was no difficulty in obtaining a footing in the Promised Land for Ephraim and Manasseh. The sons of Ephraim would therefore enter Canaan with a good measure of prestige as princes of Israel living in close contact with the Egyptian court. So this is very likely. So what she's arguing here is that Rahab could actually be a descendant of Ephraim, which would make her a Shemite and a Hebrew but she could also be a Hamite. Either way, the the racial laws are fulfilled. All might have gone well, the Canaanites tolerating, if not welcoming, their settlement in the land, but for the behavior of the would-be colonizers 
whom the men of Gath slew because they came down to take away their cattle. First Chronicles 7.21. So let me go to First Chronicles chapter 7 because this is a important information that um, I would have overlooked about the uh, Ephraimites trying to take control of the territory. And uh, if this is indeed in First Chronicles chapter 7, this is uh, new to me because, uh, you know, I, I read the entire Bible uh, for, regarding the uh, genealogies of the tribes, but uh, I may have overlooked this. And uh, this is, let me scroll down, Descendants of Ephraim, First Chronicles chapter 7, verse 20. And the sons of Ephraim, Shuthelah, and Bered, his son, and Tehath, his son, and Eldad, his son, and Tehath, his son. Verse 21, and Zabad, his son, and Shudalah, his son, and Ezer, and Iliad, whom the men of Gath were born in, whom the men of Gath that were born in that land slew, because they came down to take away their cattle. All right, so it's telling us here in Scripture that the sons of Ephraim went down into Canaan land to take cattle away from the men of Gath, but the men of Gath slew them. All right, so there it is. It's in Scripture, folks. And verse 22, And Ephraim their father mourned many days, and his brethren came to comfort him. And when he went into his wife, she conceived and bare a son, and he called his name Beriah, or Beriah, because it went evil with his house. And his daughter was Sherah, who built Beth Horon, the nether, and the upper, and Uzan Sherah. And Rephah was his son, and also Reshef, and Tila his son, and Tahan his son. And so that gives the the direction of um, migration of the descendants of Ephraim and the son called Beriah. And uh, their movement, and it says in verse 28 that uh, their possessions were Bethel, Neron, Gezer, and the towns unto Gaza, and by the borders of the children of Manasseh. So, First uh, Chronicles chapter 7 is very important in this genealogy. So, thank you, Isabel Hill Elder, for pointing this out to us. Okay, so continuing with uh, the, the scenario here, the reason... For this act of robbery is difficult to understand. It was certainly not induced by lack of funds. Overconfidence in the success of the expedition may possibly have led them to take the cattle for the purpose of a sacrificial thank offering. Hard to say. It doesn't give us an explanation in Scripture of why this would have happened. The premature attempt to enter upon their inheritance, maybe that's what it was. That I can see very easily. A premature attempt to enter upon their inheritance, which was promised to them through Abraham, but was obviously intended for all 12 tribes, not just for Ephraim and Manasseh. Okay, So, 
uh, this uh, and uh, this is probably what it was a premature attempt to enter upon their inheritance and its tragic sequel are recorded in first chronicles 720 uh, through 22 and Ephraim their father mourned many days and his brethren came to comfort him all these princes of Israel Ephraim's heirs were slain by the men of Gath what a tragedy where now is their birthright where now the succession of to the inheritance yeah it would have been wiped out right because all the sons of Ephraim were were killed by the men of Gath but in his old age Ephraim had another son who was given the dismal name of Beriah because it went evil with his house. Beriah grew to manhood and married. The ninth in descent from his youngest son was Joshua, the one appointed to lead Israel to the promised land. So here we have, again, another scenario where the bloodline was almost destroyed there would have really been no elder son. <laughs> well, I guess it would have fallen upon Manasseh if all of the sons of Ephraim had been killed. So it would have fallen upon Manasseh and possibly even to Benjamin. But Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, made all kinds of horrible mistakes in the Old Testament. But let's continue. So uh, so the ninth in descent from this youngest son was Joshua. So Ephraim had a youngest son named Beriah, and his the ninth in descent from Beriah was in fact Joshua, who did in fact enter into the promised land along with uh, uh, Caleb of Judah. Okay, and so Joshua was the one appointed to lead Israel into the promised land after Moses had disqualified himself by breaking the tablets of the uh, Ten Commandments in his anger. Moses of the tribe of Levi shepherded the Israelites out of Egypt and through the wilderness there to give them by God's command the laws and ordinances which would guide them in their national and spiritual life. But only one of their birthright tribe, Ephraim, could conduct them over the river of Jordan. Okay. Moses brought them almost to the brink of this river and from the highest peak on Mount Nebo, Pisgah, in their first inheritance, the land of Moab, on the east side of the river, he was permitted to view the promised land. Okay, that land which was ultimately taken away from the Moabites. Here his splendid and faithful leadership came to an end, that is Moses. There is another important link to the chain of events between the time of Ephraim and that of Joshua. Sherah, the daughter of Beriah, went into the land of Canaan and settled there. This great chieftainess proceeded to build three cities or castles. Beth Horon, the lower, which I just read the scriptures, Beth Horon, the upper, and Uzan Sherah apparently named after her, Uzan Shera, or the stronghold of Shera, 1 Chronicles 7.24. That Shera was already married and had a family, also many servants and attendants, is evident from the fact that so much building was necessary in order to accommodate this important woman and her retinue. So instead of, uh, as I've understood it, that uh, Rahab was the wife of a Hamite, possibly the wife of a Hamite, but also possibly the wife of a Shemite. 
Isabel Hill Elder is here telling us that she might be a descendant of Shara, the descendant of Ephraim. Here in the center of Canaan, Shara, the granddaughter of the princess of An and Joseph, took up her abode, and here her descendants lived until they were joined by their kinsmen of Israel under their great leader Joshua, also of the birthright tribe of Ephraim. So we find Ephraimites in the, la- in the promised land, and what, what did they do? They gave assistance to the other Ephraimites under Joshua. That's what happened, folks. These, these people, Rahab was not a Canaanite woman. She was not a racial Canaanite. She was living in the outposts, and those outposts were protected by the Egyptians up until the Exodus, when they pretty much lost their military empire. So continue. It's very important to understand the progression of this history. Here in the center of Canaan, Shara, the granddaughter of the princess of An and Joseph, took up her abode, and here her descendants lived until they were joined by their kinsmen of Israel under under their great leader Joshua, also of the birthright tribe of Ephraim. We can imagine the stories that would be passed on from one generation to another in Shara's family of their past glories in Egypt, of their royal descent, their birthright as Ephraimites. And they would hear from time to time of the reverse of fortune suffered by their kinsmen in Egypt when there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph, of the bondage, the exodus, the wilderness training, the first conquest under Moses of the land of Moab on the east side of the river Jordan. Okay, so these descendants of Ephraim would have maintained a separate, as they called out and set apart people of Israel, they would have remained, retained a separate culture, even though they were living in Canaanite towns. They had their own castles. And as we have been explaining, it is given to us, we have the right to do commerce with Canaanites and Edomites and even Jews, but we have no right to intermingle with them or do any other kind of uh, socialization with them. We are simply to stay apart. And that's what the word holy means in Hebrew. It means set apart, dedicated. It does not mean uh, pious or righteous. The vast majority of Israelites throughout time have not been pious or righteous. Yahweh has seen fit to destroy huge portions of our race and our tribe Frequently, and he's going to do it again to preserve the righteous remnant. Okay, let's continue. With all these events in Israel's national life, these families descended from Sherah would be more or less acquainted. And when to one of these families Rahab was born, she was given this name, which signifies remembering Egypt in token of her people's pride in their connection with Egypt in days now long past. Okay, so Rahab would be a descendant of Shara, would be an Ephraimite. Very interesting. No Canaanite would dream of giving a child such a name. <laughs> Remembering Egypt, they would have no occasion to do so. The Egyptians were their overlords to whom the Canaanites paid tribute. Okay, understood? 
And Isabel Hill Elder is making a really good argument that Rahab was, in fact, an Ephraimite. With the aid of archaeology, we can now obtain a clear picture of Canaan in the time of Joshua. The Tel El Amarna tablets, discovered in 1887 among the ruins of the palace of the Egyptian king Amenhotep IV, consist very largely of letters from native Canaanite rulers to their overlords, in Egypt obviously, and are full of appeal for help against the Israelite invaders. The tablets show that in each of the Canaanite cities of Palestine there was, in addition to the native ruler or king, an Egyptian official called, according to Major Condor, Apaka, P-A-K-A, who was presumably placed there to guard the Egyptian interests. Okay, so he was the Egyptian emissary and uh, military tribute collector, more than likely, and make sure that uh, the flow of tribute from the Canaanites to the Egyptians continued because they were lacking funds after the destruction of their military and the uh, virtually the entire house of uh, uh, pharaohs because the son of Pharaoh was killed in the plagues as well. So uh, a, a lesser person had to take over after that Pharaoh died. <clears throat> and, and continuing, for no reason which appears the Egyptians withdrew their troops from Canaan, Major Condor remarked, quote, the Egyptian troops had been withdrawn from Palestine in the year that the Israelites came out of the desert. Hmm. This explains, now, but the embassies still remained. And this was the embassy that Rahab was living in. This explains the words of Joshua in his report to Moses as one of the twelve spies sent out to view the land of Canaan. Quote, their defense is departed from them. That is, the Egyptians have departed. The house of the Paca, equivalent to our modern embassy, would naturally be in a prominent position, such as the town wall and close to the citadel. The Tel El Amarna tablets give the name of one Egyptian representative in Canaan, Zimrida, governor of Lachish. Archaeology may yet reveal the name of the Egyptian Paca in Jericho in the clays of Joshua. Very good. We shall now return to Rahab and try to ascertain how the obnoxious appellation harlot came to be attached to her. In Eastern languages, the same word is often used for harlot and widow as, for instance, in the Urdu language. The same word would appear to describe a woman no longer a virgin, but without a husband, whether she had been legally married or not. It is a striking fact that in the authorized version of the scriptures, Jeroboam's mother, Zeruah, is recorded as a widow woman, 1 Kings 11.26, while in the Septuagint, the word used is harlot. Okay, so there are occasions where the Septuagint is wrong and the King James Version is right. If the translations had inserted widow in the margin opposite Rahab's names in Joshua chapter 2, it would at once have been clear to the reader that harlot and widow were interchangeable terms. That's very unfortunate, but that's the culture of the day. And it's not necessarily Israelite culture, but uh, probably you know, if you borrow a word from another culture 
and you don't know it has a double meaning, <laughs> right? Eventually, that double meaning is is discovered, and you say, oh, man, yeah, we need to separate these terms, but they never did. Farrar Fenton, in his translation, omits the moral status of Zerua, while Rahab is put down as an innkeeper and by Coverdale as a taverner. These are but brave attempts to clear the fair name of Rahab from the objectionable term harlot. Innkeeper and taverner, however, convey no historical truth, for in the East the inns or cons had neither host nor hostess. I guess they were government installations, if her statements here are correct, or, or state institutions. Which, but I'm sure there was somebody appointed to run the place, <laughs> right? So, but uh, apparently not individual owners. But let's continue. The Septuagint, from which our authorized version is derived, okay, some portions of the King James are derived from the Septuagint, but not all. Most of them are derived from the Masoretic text, which is the Jewish version of the Old Testament was translated at a time when the women of Israel had lost almost all their social status through contact with the Babylonians during the captivity. The rabbis, therefore, would be at no pains to convey the truth regarding the moral or social standing of any women. As for Rahab's presence in Jericho, and not with her Israel kinsfolk in one of the Beth Horon cities, the situation now seems to explain itself. The Egyptian representatives had departed upon the withdrawal of the troops from Canaan. It would appear that the last Paca in Jericho had died, and his widow, Rahab, did not vacate the embassy. Though not encouraged, it was not forbidden to Israelites to intermarry with Egyptians, because they were Hamites of pure white blood. Therefore, Rahab, in marrying the Paca, was guilty of no breach of Israel law, nor of disobedience to a divine command. Well, she would not have been recognized as an Israelite by marrying an Egyptian man. However, her offspring would be considered Israelites. But uh, she, what uh, Elder is saying here is that Rahab was originally an Israelite anyhow of the tribe of Ephraim. But that her marriage to the Paca, the Egyptian Paca, was in no way illegal it was not a violation of Israelite racial law. So if she marries again into back into Israel, no problem. The house, which has been identified as that of Rahab's astride the walls of Jericho, is in the position the Pachas would have been. All right? That structure still exists. Yahweh has preserved it for us. Quote, at the northwest end of the city stood the great citadel or Migdal, whose walls still rise to nearly 40 feet. Rahab's house was astride the walls not far from this building. Rahab's house did not share the destruction of the falling of the walls, since she and her family were saved alive. The proximity of the citadel certainly appears to have held up the walls in the neighborhood in its immediate vicinity. So maybe the uh, Rahab's house was astride the citadel, uh, which was uh, which would have been tremendously fortified. It is evident, therefore, that Rahab's house adjoined the citadel. This is precisely where we should expect to find the Egyptian embassy, a specially appointed official building, 
as the house on the wall where Rahab lived. Now there's a footnote here from Cruden's Concordance that looks like, I have to be careful not to go outside the document here. In Cruden's Concordance, under the word harlot, we read, quote, Some think she was only an hostess or innkeeper, and that this is the true significance of the original word. Had she been a woman of ill fame, say they, would Salmon, the prince of the house of Judah, and one of the Savior's ancestors have taken her to wife? Or could he have done it by the, by the law? Besides, the spies of Joshua would hardly have gone to lodge with a prostitute, a common harlot, those who were charged with so nice and dangerous a commission. <laughs> nice and dangerous, interestingly put by Cruden's. Cruden's Concordance, uh, a concordance that's uh, pretty much neglected. Anyway, good point. Very good point. Yeah, there's no way that Salmon, the uh, in the line of Yahshua, not Joshua, but Yahshua, would, uh, would he uh, marry uh, a Canaanite harlot? Would he? Moses didn't. Joseph didn't. So you gotta you gotta remember the racial laws that apply to Israel. So there's no way Salmon would have violated those racial laws. And he would have known that Rahab was a descendant of Ephraim of Sherah. Let's continue. We shall now go over to the other side of the river Jordan where Joshua is making careful preparation for the conquest of Canaan. Joshua is determined to take no step but at Jehovah's command. He will not make the mistake of his forefathers in their premature attempt to anticipate their inheritance. The Israelites are instructed in the part each one must play in the conquest, and they are brought into perfect obedience to their leader, Joshua, who himself takes his instructions from the great leader and commander, the captain of the host of the Lord. Okay. So, Joshua, we have now discovered, is a direct descendant of Ephraim through Beriah. Otherwise, the line would have died out. So, and it says, that the, uh, and who himself takes his instructions from the great leader and commander, the captain of the hosts of Yahweh. Joshua's first step is to send two spies to, quote, view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came to, quote, a widow's house named Rahab. It is evident from these words that Joshua was well aware of his kinswoman presence in Jericho and sent the two spies to her house. This is borne out in the reference to the spies by St. James, where they are termed messengers. Messengers are sent on a specific errand to a definite place or address. Arrived there, they were welcomed by the Lady Rahab, and once over her threshold they were safe, for the embassy was extraterritorial, and so the spies or messengers had the privilege of being outside Canaanitish territory. And folks, that tradition of embassies continues throughout the world today. The news of their arrival soon reached the native ruler or king of Jericho. He sent his officials to Rahab with the request, Bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thine house. 
But why thou, why this request? Why not send his officials into Rahab's house to institute a search? Because no native could enter the embassy uninvited. Capiche? The spies were now legally in Egypt. In this incident may be seen the strong line of demarcation between Rahab and the Canaanites among whom she lived. Very good, Isabel. Very good. Although the Egyptian representative was no longer at the embassy, the Canaanites did not admit that the Egyptians had withdrawn permanently. For one letter from the king of Jerusalem to Amenhotep complains, quote, Since the Egyptian troops have gone away, quitting the land of the king of my land of the king, my lord, let him be kind and let him regard the entreaties, etc. So this gives us the impression that the Canaanites having been tributaries to the Egyptians for several hundred years now, would have been very weak militarily. And at this point in time, after the Exodus, were providing slaves to the Egyptians and not much else. Rahab, in, con- in conversation with the spies, says, quote, I know that Jehovah hath given you the land, speaking to the spies or the messengers, not only in her use of the memorial name Yahweh, but in her knowledge of the great land covenant does Rahab prove herself to be an Israelite. Well said, Isabel Hill Elder. Through her ancestors for eight or nine generations, though her, though her ancestors for eight or nine generations had been separated from the main body of Israel, but they would have been in communication with one another. It is this fact which makes Rahab anxious to be assured that when the conquest does take place, she and her kindred will be secured against the fate of the iniquitous and idolatrous Canaanites. In the line of the scarlet thread was to mark off the embassy for the invading Israelites. And so once again, the redemption color was the token of safety for Israelites in Egypt. When the spies returned to the camp, they brought from Rahab precisely the news which Joshua wished to learn, quote, All the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. Now, I wonder if there were still giants in the land. There were giants throughout Canaan land, but whether they were living in Jericho is another matter. The conquest, therefore, would not be difficult. Who but one of his kinfolks could or would supply this information for the use of the Israelite leader? Certainly the Canaanites wouldn't. While Joshua on the east side of Jordan made preparation across the river, the vanguard being composed of warriors from the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, according to their promise given to Moses, Joshua 22, 1-4, Rahab was occupied in sending urgent messages to her family and kindred in Beth Horon, the upper and lower, and Uzan Shera, named after her ancestor, the mistress Shera, to come to her in the Egyptian embassy for safety. No time must be lost, for presently Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. So the invasion was imminent. And when in due course the walls of Jericho fell and its utter destruction compassed, Joshua sent the same two young spies to the intact Egyptian embassy to bring out Rahab 
and her father and her mother and her brethren and all that she had, and they brought out all her kindred, many families. Okay? So the house of Rahab and of Ephraim living there was preserved by Yahweh thanks to Rahab. Thanks to Rahab. Okay, yes, uh, it is a huge difference to be, to be a geographic <laughs> Moabite versus a racial Moabite. Same here with Rahab. Huge difference between being a racial Canaanite or a Jerichoite, for lack of a better term, resident of Jericho, versus a descendant of Ephraim living in the Egyptian embassy in Jericho. Huge difference. Okay. And uh, the fact that Rahab preserved all these people and uh, did, uh, you know, did assist her kinsman Joshua in overthrowing Jericho is a tremendous thing in her favor. Rahab deserves to be honored by us and not slighted as a slut slash whore or even innkeeper. She was nothing of the kind. She was an embassy keeper. That's what she was. She was a lady, a prominent lady in both Egypt and Israel. Thank you very much. This shows you how, how bad a translation can ruin someone's reputation. Okay. So how helpful they would be to Joshua in the conquest of Canaan. They prepared the way for the settlement of their brethren in the land of promise as Joseph prepared the way for the settlement of his brethren in Egypt. These Israelites, with Rahab taking a leading part, were the divinely chosen pioneers in the entering in of the Israel people into their inheritance. These Israel families housed in the Egyptian embassy for safety were, we have sought to show, Ephraimites, and as such were entitled to the privileges of the firstborn or leading tribe. Very good. For with a strong hand hath Yahweh brought thee out of Egypt, Exodus 13.9. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt, Hosea 11.1. And this is the birthright tribe, folks, the elder son by decree, by decree of Jacob, because his other brothers didn't qualify. When the infant Jesus was taken into Egypt for safety, he was brought out in fulfillment of the prophecy, Out of Egypt have I called my son, Matthew 2.15. So twice, Israel was called out of Egypt and Yahshua was called out of Egypt. This is the last and final occasion upon which Egypt is referred to in Scripture as a place of refuge for an Israelite. That the rulers of Egypt gave help to Israel in their conquest of Canaan may be gathered from both the scriptures and the Tel Elamarna tablets. The hornet was the badge of the third and his successors. Joshua, at God's command, reminds Israel, I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, even the two kings of the Amorites, but not with thy sword or with thy bow, or bow rather. 
Sir Charles Marston from Archaeological Research agrees that Israel did have such help from the rulers of Egypt east of Jordan and also in the withdrawal from Palestine of all Egyptian troops when Israel came out of the wilderness. Of course, the Canaanites were not the friends of the Egyptians. Even at this late date, they were considered the enemies of the Egyptians, but because of military weakness, had to withdraw. And certainly, understanding uh, whoever succeeded the pharaoh of the Exodus uh, was probably still smarting (laughs) from those events and said, well, maybe I better not tamper with the people of Yahweh. Maybe I should leave them alone and not meddle in their affairs any longer. That is quite likely what the scenario was. Okay, so she continues. The reason for the friendly attitude of Egypt towards Israel at this time may be found in the fact that Queen T, spelled T-H-Y-I here, the wife of Amenhotep II and mother of Amenhotep IV, came from northern Syria, which was inhabited by the descendants of Terah. She was an Aramit, a Syrian, a Shemite. Got it, folks? A Shemite. And uh, if this is the same as the uh, uh, the one pictured in Egypt, a very Aryan-looking woman, straight nose, uh, you know, beautiful eyes, straight chin, thin lips. She was an Aryan, Nefertiti, if they're if they're the same person. Anyway, this fair. Blue-eyed queen of the Egyptian monuments could therefore claim kinship with the descendants of Terah's son, Abraham, who, it will be remembered, was declared by the children of Heth to be a mighty prince among us, Genesis 23.6. Rahab, the widow, married Prince Salma, or Salmon, of the house of Pharaoh's Judah, and so was brought into the exclusive and royal family from which the house of David was built, Matthew 1.5. No woman of questionable character would have been admitted to thus thus divinely protected royal enclosure, for marriage with a Canaanite was strictly forbidden, Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 3. Rahab's son Boaz married Ruth, consequently Ruth's mother-in-law by her first marriage, Naomi, and that by her second marriage, Rahab, were women destined to be famous in history and to have their names recorded in the lineage of Israel's Redeemer and King. Well said, Isabel Hill Elder. I think I can conclude this section here today. It is a striking fact that the epistle to the Hebrews and the epistle of St. James addressed to the 12 tribes of Israel scattered abroad are both addressed primarily to Israelites, and that mention is made of the strength and faith and character of their ancestors, Rahab of Jericho being one of them. By faith, Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace, Hebrews 11.31. That's because she was an Ephraimite. The Greek word used here for peace, Irene, connotes unity. Unity, surely an identity of race with the messengers sent by Joshua. Quote, Was not Rahab justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? James 2.25 Justify, dikaios, 
I defend the cause of, I acquit and justify. Only Israelites had received the law. Even though those Ephraimites living in Jericho and other places in Canaan land prematurely, they were still the kinsmen of the Israelites who went through the cloud and received the law. So even though they did not receive the law, they were still faithful according to Paul and James. Okay? So Rahab defended the cause of her people Israel in the help she was able to render Joshua in his conquest plans. Rahab's faith was the faith of an Israelite, the faith of one who, like Abraham, was justified by works, and likewise, with faithful Abraham, received the commendation and blessing of the God of Israel, namely Yahweh. Okay, I keep telling you guys that this book, Far Above Rubies, by Isabel Hill Elder, is absolute must-reading for every Israelite and for white people who are interested in the scripture. So, again, uh, the the link here is to the rabbithole.wiki forward slash far above rubies. And this is a free online version. It's a PDF that you can scroll through. And it seems to be working now. It wasn't working for me when I, but the, the link that Brother Abar put in the chat room works very good so again no non-israelite shall enter the no mamzer shall not enter into the congregation of israel a mamzer deuteronomy 23:2 mamzer means mongrel shall not enter into the congregation of Israel a mamzer. So would Salmon, a pure-blooded Israelite, disregard the laws of Israel and marry a, uh, a Canaanite harlot? Really? I don't think so, folks. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. See you next time. Bye-bye.